0: Welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rizak. This is a show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome, and let's get started. In the coming episodes, I hope to speak with more futurists and visionaries. I like to have conversations about what is possible as we navigate change. I'm reminded of a Kurt Vonnegut quote. He said, quote, I want to stay as close to the edge as I can without going over. Out on the edge, you can see all kinds of things that you can't see from the center, unquote. It's good for us to listen to alternative perspectives and ideas. I think it sharpens our intellect and keeps our brains working well. You may not agree or can envision these ideas bearing fruit, But new systems are often started by visionaries and futurists who try and sketch out what they're seeing. And we, as early adopters of these new ideas, work to turn these ideas over in our conscious and subconscious minds, working the fertile ground of our imagination, and trying our best to allow others to contribute as we seek our own place and contribution to the greater good. I'm at the point in my life where I don't want to close off an idea because it initially feels out there, Our greatest transformations, both external and internal, may come from these very esoteric and edgy ideas and concepts. My guest today is someone I have a great deal of respect for, both as a filmmaker and a futurist. Ian McKenzie is a filmmaker, visionary artist, and creator and host of the podcast, The Mythic Masculine. For over 11 years, Ian has been tracking the global emergence of new culture, seeking out and amplifying the voices of visionaries, artists, and activists who have been working towards planetary system change. Here's my interview with Ian McKenzie. Okay, I'm here with Ian McKenzie. Ian, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Tony. Good to be here. Absolutely. Um, so you're the creator and the host of the excellent podcast, the Myth, the Mythic Masculine. Great title, by the way. Um, uh, when did you first get interested in myth? Was it something when you were really young? Was it Joseph Campbell? Like, what was kind of your your on ramp for your interest in uh, the Mythic Masculine?
1: Uh, well, I think like many, uh, you know, I absorbed a, a sort of mythic imagination through a lot of pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I I mean, a big obvious one is Star Wars, of course, which, you know, I've only learned later had uh, so much of uh, George George Lucas's inspiration came from Joseph Campbell. Of course, other sources. Um, And I would say that I I more directly began encountering myth certainly much later in my life. Um, The book Iron John was certainly a big piece of that, Um, you know, but even before that, I was drawn to work on a film project, uh, which was actually about women. Uh, we're really the rise of the feminine. Uh, and this is a number of years ago, maybe back in 2012. And um, I just sensed that there was something kind of going on with that, um, which led me to start looking at books like uh, Dancing in the Flames uh, by Marion Woodman and um, sort of the or Claros uh, Pincola's Estes as well, you know, Women who Run with Wolves. Mm-hmm. So I actually began kind of interested in myth through the feminine side. Uh, because I was interested in making this project. And then through that I also encountered, of course, Iron John and King War Magician Lover in this kind of mythic way, uh, which then kind of ignited my understanding of wow, I knew so little about the masculine actually, which is, you know, not necessarily a surprise the more I looked into it and how, you know, a lot of men they don't necessarily they don't know what they're missing until they encounter it. Right. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden the you know the the hunger, the the longing is tapped and suddenly, you know, I was I was never the same yeah, that's that I think that's a common narrative for men
0: who have found their way into, you know, some of these initiatory trainings and stuff is that they didn't know. um they didn't know that anything was missing. There's just kind of a restlessness and maybe not mm-hmm. quite not quite having a home base in terms of where they're at and in terms of being a man. Um, The, the myth, the famous mythic poetic movement of the 1990s, this was Mm -hmm. kind of Rob, like you already mentioned, Robert Bly, there was Sam Keen uh, the new warrior training got created by the mankind project. Mm -hmm. Um, Is this still, is this thread still alive and well today? Um, especially now when it seems we can't initiate men in person, like everything's kind of on hold. And then I wanted to ask you, since you're younger, like, is there a thread there for the younger men or does that need to be sort of, um, customized? Is there something that is that, that maybe the older generation like myself is missing for the younger guys and what they might need for, for this sort of, uh, uh, mythic initiation and such.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. I mean, when I encountered Iron John, this was, I think, 20, maybe 2015. And Mm -hmm. I was quite surprised at that point that that was actually the first time I began to really hearing about it. Because when I started, you know, doing the research and looking back, and recognizing that there had been this initial wave um, of the mythopoetic, that I I was, I would kind of had this, it was like a mystery of, of um, where did it go? Because, you know, again, it seemed, you know, I would, I would talk to older men that say, yeah, you know, there were times when we had, you know, hundreds of men would show up at the local community hall to, you know, uh, cycle off into numerous groups that were really into this stuff. And at the, at the time, you know, I, uh, later on, I barely knew anybody that was in a men's group. And it was like something that nobody really talked about. So it was just surprising to me that I was like, wait, what happened? And so, and in some sense, um, the reason I found it though is because I do believe there's also a resurgence happening today. You know, I think that the uh, groups like, of course, Mankind Project are continuing, you know, their good work, Um, also Sacred Sons and, you know, like uh, others that have really taken the torch up and are trying to, you know, make it relevant to younger men today. which i think which i think it certainly is and and you know based on the i don't know kind of latest um uh surge of of interest in in you know quote men's work yeah i would say yeah like that there's uh sort of in the next spiral you know has come around again um one of the things that i'm really uh i feel is really important though is that things that were learned in the previous wave like really need to be brought forward Mm -hmm. because i do see like there's this you know the kind of um younger impulses to feel like, you know, everything that you're doing is the first time ever, you know, it's ever been done. Right. And, uh, and there's a a humility, I think it needs to occur to recognize that older men, you know, have been through a lot of this stuff, have learned a ton about, you know, the ins and outs of men's groups and, you know, what were the challenges? um, What were the blind spots and without the willingness to really seek out that, um, kind of hard wrought wisdom, Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're doomed to make similar mistakes and in some ways, um, you know, burn the pyre too hot too quickly and then burn it out again. And, you know, maybe it would go underground if it wasn't tended well. And so this is the benefit I think younger men have now is that they do, they can ask those questions, you know, they can go back and read those books. Um, and that's really what I try to do with the podcast as well is actually bridge these movements, you know, speaking with people like Michael Mead, uh, Martin Shaw and others that, Really connect the dots and, and keep Absolutely. that keep that kind of unbroken sense of okay yeah there are times when it was you know big and then it went quiet and so let's not forget you know that that there's much that can be brought forward to today.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, and you also have on you had on uh, some of the new men like Nikki Wilkes, uh, who we mm. both had on and he's a perfect example of you know integrating the the lessons and wisdom from from past generations and traditions and making it his own and being really committed in his heart with humility about serving the next generation. I mean, I think he's a perfect example of like, he gives me so much hope that mm. this type of work that we're speaking of is going to be alive and well in, you know, the children's generation. My, my mm. son's 13 and that there's somebody like mm. Nikki leading trainings for his generation just makes me super, you know, just in my heart and grateful mm. that, okay, it is going to carry on. It's in good hands with men like Nikki.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Nikki has a beautiful soul. And, you know, I do think that there's something um, really, really beautiful about how, you know, so much of the previous generational work was really, I don't know, doing it in the face of the absence of, of so much that, you know, we're now benefiting from that, that because the previous generation was willing to wrestle it out and, you know, fail in many ways. And, you know, I I studied with another teacher named Stephen Jenkinson, and he talks about how, you know, I'll broadly say this: this lunge toward village, you know, which was really what what I see it, or maybe you could say village-mindedness, you know, village mm-hmm. intelligence, and how the the first generation that uh, tries to make it happen, you know, are, are sort of like the, they need to be willing to fail, uh, but that doesn't mean it was a mistake, right? It, it just it just means that the next generation, like their their kids, that were in the presence of them failing at it have a chance to actually get it right. That's great. Right. Because they're in the presence of the failure, but that's not nothing that it's actually a lot, you know, that they were willing to, to, to have parents that tried. So I definitely see that in the previous generation, the willingness to try has now led to it's a, a bit more of a grounded, um, you know, rich possibility of it being more, you know, sort of sustainably uh, or, or rooted, you mm. know, in place in, in, in having elders, you know, it's like a forest, you know, I really thought that this kind of parallel between, an old growth forest is, you know, you can't you can't rush a forest. Right. You know that that it needs time to actually grow and to develop and to, you know, to be itself. And so you get the diversity. You know, over time you get the old elders over time and the younger's. You know, jostling up against each other together. But if you just have a, a kind of decimated forest planted with trees, you know, all at the same time, you basically got a monocropped like mm. A monoculture, a mono which, you know, can, at the surface can look kind of pretty, you know, like lots of trees, but at the same time, there's no kind of verticality, you know, across generations that actually provides so much of that, you know, just village intelligence that I see, you know, is possible now.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I was reading your essay, The Days the Earth Stood Still. Mm-hmm. Really great essay. Um, you had mentioned that you see three narratives at play right now. Um, they are this: this is war. This is a conspiracy, and this is a wake-up call. I just wanted you to speak a little bit about those three, the interplay right now that you see, and, uh, you know, what, what are we learning right now from these three narratives that you see?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. And uh, I'm grateful to speak a little about it. It was a few months ago I wrote it, and uh, I'm still proud of the title, let me just tell you. Absolutely. Uh, the little throwback to uh, yeah. the sci- sci-fi. Um I'd say these are the narratives that I've I've tracked and others have, you know, spoken on. And I just feel that for me, it's the most helpful way of of mapping this moment. Mm -hmm. Because I I do feel like, you know, so often we live in a time where I would say there's a crisis of meaning or a a crisis of of how to make meaning from from the times. Mm -hmm. And uh, because so much of our political leadership, of course, is is, um, either stoking, you know, division or really unable to provide a meaningful sense of, you know, what's, what's happening or how we can engage with it. So uh, I would say what's been most helpful for me is, is tracking on the one hand, there's this strong narrative of uh, that this is war, that, that COVID and coronavirus and the rest is war because essentially we're, we're encountering a being that is messing with the, the human march toward progress and, and self-mastery. Right. That anything that essentially interrupts humans uh, ability to just, you know, keep being itself in the way that it wants, you know, um, um, no matter the cost yeah. is an enemy. Or at least that's the culture turned into an enemy. Right. Because how could it be anything else if, if it's, it's in our way? Right. And of course, that's a very um, uh, kind of uh, antagonistic or, or kind of a, a relationship um, or a position born of lack of relationship to life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Instead of seeing life is simply there for us. And so, you know, kind of get out of the way. Um, so it's very that's that's the most common narrative, I believe, that this is a war, you see it with all the language, you know, from right. the medical community and even the political leaders that say, you know, we're fighting this thing and um it's all it's all there. And the other narrative, an alternate narrative that has come forth, right, is this is a conspiracy, which um, you know, at the time I wrote this, there was some stuff coming out, um, you know, the pandemic film. Uh, had come out. You might have seen. Uh, I know the filmmaker actually, Mickey Willis, as well from from a previous project. So it, it wasn't a surprise to me that he'd done something like that, like it put forth um, a kind of alternative scenario, which had, uh, in my opinion, a kind of reckless um, certainty around certain scientific, you know, quote facts around, you know, what caused the coronavirus or not, or you know, who's in the shadowy cabal of, you know, elite and all the rest, and and you know, largely unsubstantiated. Um, in a meaningful way. But it's helpful for people who who don't believe the main story, right, to have an alternative story to say, oh, this is what's really going on. Right. Um, you know, I was reading a, an article last night in New York Times about the QAnon this phenomenon. Yep. Um, yeah, which, you know, I, I haven't dove s- super deep in the rabbit hole, but the the article helped Uh, just kind of elaborate a little bit more about it and I would say this is uh, certainly like a continuation of this narrative that this idea that there's this master conspiracy Mm -hmm. Um, and that uh, it was fascinating the article really put forth beyond a kind of internet phenomenon it it was actually more helpful to understand this as the birth of a new religion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and this is really interesting to think of it that way um Right. Because it's a way of making meaning in a time when meaning is so um, hard to come by. Like, like, again, those people that are like not willing to go along with the main narrative, but feel lost and um, need to have like there has to be a grand scheme at work. Otherwise, is it just random, you know? Right. Right. Um, and so that, that's still like within the vein of the conspiracy. And then the third one I, I put forth is that this is a wake up call, which, you know, if, if we think about just from from a systemic perspective. Um, uh, any system from a you know from that systemic perspective is really important to have feedback loops
0: mm-hmm.
1: right because any any system that doesn't have proper feedback loops is essentially destined to you know go off the rails um, or to cause more harm uh, or to not know you know the consequence of its own wake and so the wake-up call is to say, um, you know, I, I was uh, listening to a podcast a while ago from uh, a reputable scientist who, who had done a lot of study and actually encountered a version, I think, of, of the coronavirus a number of years ago in China, and had put forth a paper at the time saying, "Hey, you know, be on the alert for this one. It feels a bit, um, you know, uh, uh, dangerous, like mm-hmm. if, like if it was to get out." And the way that he described it was, you know, these these um, viruses were largely left to their own devices, you know, in the, in the deep jungles, in the deep wild, uh, sort of stay there. They tend to stay there. But the more that humans encroach on the wild, the more that we sort of say, hey, well, you know, this is more for us, um, then it opens up the possibility of being, uh, you know, um, encountering and therefore unleashing these these viruses, which are really just life being itself, yeah. right? And life, life just happens to be itself in this way. And like the first narrative that this is a war. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you say that um, uh, something is just being itself? You know, no matter it interrupts human intent. You know, is uh, is but still just being itself. And one last thing from, a, from my teacher. You know, he says, you know, the wild doesn't mean you harm. It just doesn't mean you. Mm. Yeah. 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 Which is, it's such a beautiful rendering. That is, And so, yeah. So that's, anyway, that's, that's the, that's been helpful for me, you know, in this and um, it's hopefully helpful for others.
0: Well, and I wanted to ask you, I I watched your short film, Sacred Economics, which Mm -hmm. is really awesome. How how long did it take to do that, by the way?
1: Um, Well, curiosity, did you see the original or the remix? Uh, I did a remix in 2019. I think I saw the remix, actually. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. I was just just curious. Um, Yeah. Yeah, the original, um, I started recording it at Occupy uh, Wall Street back in mm, 2011. Mm -hmm. And then it took about, I don't know, three or four months, you know, because it wasn't a, it wasn't that, I was working on a film called Occupy Love with the Mm -hmm. director Velcro Ripper, which is, you know, that's how, what is it released uh, about a year later. And this short came about after reading Charles's book. And I was like, wow, I have to make, I have to make something about this because it was so good. Yeah, yeah. Was, so, it took, so it took about that long.
0: It's great. It, I mean, it's got Charles. Um, it's got Charles Eisenstein in there, um, and it's you talk about the story of separation um, in it, which was really beautiful. And then you also introduce this this whole um, idea about you start to dissect the money economy and what that has meant for us. And I think a lot of people have a hard time envisioning any sort of alternative to the money economy i know i do um and so what what is the alternative that you featured in this short documentary um and yeah i guess i guess i'm just looking at how do people start to envision something beyond this you know uh, it's the water we swim in we just most people be like that's just fairy tale to think we could do something and not have Mm -hmm. money, money be the metric or the measurement or how we exchange goods. Um, It can be difficult. It it challenges the imagination um, in a certain way, but maybe that's part of what we're going through right now is to try to start to forge new narratives out of stuff that looked really monolithic, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I do think that the like you say, the challenge is vision, um, vision of what's possible, because otherwise, you know, we can have a sense of, okay, we don't want this, but mm-hmm. unless there's the possibility of flowing that energy and that um, passion into an alternative. I mean, you know, the Buckminster Fuller quote gets trotted out a lot, which is, you know, you can't fix the existing system or change it unless you build a new system. Mm-hmm. And and I feel that sometimes that could be a bit of a slap in the face to the activists on the ground, you know, in the street being like... You know, hey, we still need to <clears throat> stop behaviors that uh, or in systems that are causing a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know we can't just all, you know, buy Tesla's. like uh, there's a there's a yeah. kind of necessary stopping um, action, you know that that uh, um, Joanna Macy actually calls, you know, direct action was a key piece of this great turning. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is, uh consciousness which is a, a sphere that you know many in this sort of I don't know new agey and um kind of visionary space are and i like I, I tend to be in this direction to allow that energy to flow into possibles possibilities of the future and yeah so sacred economics for me was so important because like you say you know if people can't understand how the money economy could be different then they, they, they can't put their energy into it and i'll just say that the the like for, for example some elements are already happening which is uh, one one piece named in the book uh, Charles talks about is the universal basic income, mm-hmm. right? Which uh, is getting a well lot more traction these days. In some ways, because you know, because COVID has made it already happen, at least in the kind of short term. You know, here in uh, Canada, the government has uh, been a little more generous with the kind of monthly support during this time. Yep. And I understand in the U.S. they also you know they they do offer something. Yep. Um, but uh, the the reason why that doesn't happen more is actually really interesting when you tease it apart of it because. If people say well you know maybe we do it now but that's going to impact the overall economic health and you know we'll go into a recession and you know um people are just going to freeload like right that's right. The, that's the cynicism that comes in it's the fear yeah 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 and you. and where does it come from is well it comes from the uh scarcity which is how the current economic system provides a kind of um unconscious incentive to to run like that the Things are only valuable if they're scarce, you know, according to the right. current economy. So that's why things are become more and more heavily commodified. You know, water is a really good example. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a couple decades ago, if they said, you know, how big the bottled water economy or like commodity, commodity would be, people would think you're crazy. Yeah. Who would buy water, right? All of a sudden, you know, it's a huge uh, billions and billions a year. So just to say that the uh, universal basic income, the reason it doesn't happen is not because there's lack of money. Um, because there's lots of money out there, you know, you just look at the billionaires, but also lots of money gets spent on things that actually are, you could maybe say dealing with the symptoms, you know, for example, like, you know, extra police budgets that are dealing with homeless people um, who actually can't afford to live anywhere. Um, all of that money that's going on, on that part of the economy could actually be shifted to give those people a place to be or like a base Line, uh, support and, and some would say that's welfare or something but welfare has a certain connotation right mm-hmm. it's sort of a until you're back on your feet and then you know then you can work hard there's shame involved absolutely whereas universal basic income is like hey humans have generated so much wealth um, that how could we possibly not care for each other you know at the basic level so that at least there's no fear of you know being destitute and, and cast out and the rest yeah so it's a story that actually prevents this from happening not the lack of resource
0: Do you you think think it comes, the big shift away from the money economy, do you think that comes because of an economic catastrophe, you know, like just the total collapse of the bond market or something? I don't know Mm macroeconomics that well. Or is it, do you think it comes with, like, intentional communities that put in an alternative in place that they use and then and then it gets modeled because there's it's successful for people that are living in that community. I don't know whether it's a, you know, intentional community or uh, a county or something says, "Hey, we're going to try this," or is it just too much to mm-hmm. think, you know, they could implement such things with all the the red tape and stuff that, that 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 might be involved with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I see I see great value, you know, building upon the existing digital um, uh, infrastructure, right? So yep. for example, like, you know, in the past when people have tried things like local currencies, which um, to varied degrees of success. The challenge has really been um, adoption, right? Because if you, like in my small community here, we've, we've had a local dollar, but really everybody has to commit to it. Otherwise it doesn't quite work. Yeah. And so having paper money in that regard has been challenging because, you know, you have to print it and, and circulate it and the bank's got to get on board and blah, blah, blah. Whereas digital currency... Um, obviously seems like it has a lot less friction in how it moves around. And I could see, I I think some have um, advocated, for example, like micro local currencies, right? Which are digital in the sense that are accepted within the local economy because so much of, you know, resource gets siphoned off to big corporations. Yep. um, And rather than staying within the community and circulating like water, right? Like, which is the flow of money. All these metaphors we use around money is in water actually very similar. So, there in the book and in the film he touches on a few and that's one major piece right around uh, localizing again the other thing that i think is going to be a massive game changer is the internalization of costs right which is basically saying right now there's so much externalization of the consequence of the the economy right so a, a corporation say that builds something or you know mines something they get to externalize all of the consequence of most of it, right? Like mm-hmm. decimation of an ecosystem, or you know, mining and the, the cheap labor and all that stuff. All of that consequence is not in the cost of the thing. Yeah. Um, but imagine, for example, like imagine a hamburger with beef grown in the I don't know Brazil, um, which decimated a rainforest. Imagine the actual cost was hundred dollars for that burger. Right. Right, right, right. Like, or, of course, or, nobody or or would or, buy it.
0: Or, ca- or cancer right at us. You know, people well, that eat yeah. it a lot. And and but how how do you start to how do you start to um, give numbers to the internal costs when that's not something that you've that you've been accustomed to? How do you build a model for that?
1: For internalizing the costs? Yeah, yeah. Well, it does. It does really take a stronger. Um, I would say some stronger government that isn't so much about like, again, this whole idea that the market is a free market as it is, is utterly ludicrous because sure. there's such manipulation that goes on and subsidies already, you know, mm-hmm. depending on which lobbyist is doing what and all the rest. So yeah, again, that's, that's just never been true. Yeah. Um, it's just the question of where do the incentives go? Right. And of course enforcement in terms of, you know, how can, um, how can the, the cost of doing business, right because of the raising, you know, t- a tax or something on whatever, the, the mining of the thing or whatever it is, yeah. actually reflect that that cost, right? And then that gets to the consumer. And the consumer, the idea that, you know, the consumer right now has any sense of the cost of the thing, like to the, you know, biosphere or all the rest, yeah. is very difficult to ascertain, right? Because when you look at, say, two coffee alternatives, you know, one says maybe Rainforest Certified, which, you know, like, okay, that's cool. Yep. But it, they don't say... Um like other ones don't say chocolate, you know, like child labor. Like they don't right. they don't say that on the bar, which right. um there was some great bit in the UK one time when they actually did that where they actually were selling chocolate and they were like explicitly saying, Oh yeah, this so this is child labor. And the people are like, What? You know, of course they wouldn't quote buy that if it was at the front of the of the consciousness, right? But right, it, right. there's a whole seductive advertising industry which aims to push all of that out of sight. Um and the cost of things is is not actually true. Right. So a bar made with child labor should be way more expensive than one done with you know proper ethical practices, but generally it's the other way around.
0: Right, right. That's true. Um, well, Ian, thanks so much for coming on. It's it's great to chat with you. Um, other than the podcast, what, um, what other creative projects are you excited about you want our listeners to know about that might be coming up here in the fall?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so the shorter term one that's coming up sooner is um, a part of a group called the Rad Dad Collective, which is... Uh, a group of fathers, uh, largely with younger children, um, who, you know, one, are just utterly lost as to what is actually happening and and how to uh, to step into their fatherhood. And so um, I'm co-facilitating a group with a good friend of mine uh, on this subject. So we start early September. If if men, uh, you know, either expecting fathers or fathers with uh, younger kids want to join, check it out at Rad Dad Collective dot org i believe yep. yeah and the other major film project i'm doing now five years in the making is uh, about a community in portugal called tamara of which has um grown in some degree of uh of notoriety you know of late um, in that they're essentially like a free love community that made it you know mm-hmm. started 40 years ago and uh, so many others were brought down because you know they couldn't deal with these issues of you know love and sex and shadow and money yeah. And uh, Tamara really put those things in the center and said, "Hey, wait a second. You know what happens if we really tried to navigate these?" Mm-hmm. And and they've essentially um, created. It's a research project. It's not really a kind of viable. Everybody has to live this way. But what they've retrieved from their research in, you know, human relationship and culture and place is is profound. And so we went. We've been in the community, my co-directors and I, uh, in four times over the last five years. And uh, this film is really a look at you know, what does it take to actually build an, an alternative, a community of trust? That's
0: great. Is that coming out in the fall? Is that going to be finished? Uh,
1: it'll be complete probably in the fall. Um, yeah. You know, it's, The film is called Love School. People want mm-hmm. to check it out, loveschoolfilm.com. Great. Uh, but more likely released in the spring. And, you know, again, we don't quite know how to release it, we know depending on COVID. Uh, it most likely will involve like a global online release. So anybody can watch it from wherever. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's very much geared towards people that really want to know, you know, what does it take to actually build a livable, you know, community of trust. Awesome. Well, let us know, and we'll let everybody know on our end, but thank you so
0: much, Ian. I really appreciate the conversation today. Mm, thanks, Tony. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Ian. I highly recommend his excellent short documentary, Sacred Economics with Charles Eisenstein. It's a 12-minute film, and it presents many of these ideas in an elegant and beautiful way. And if you're a new father and feeling a bit lost, like all new fathers do with young children, consider checking out Ian's Rad Dad Collective. Sounds like a fantastic men's group to be a part of. And if you're just now discovering Basecamp for Men and you think this is a valuable show, please take five minutes and go review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you very much, listeners. Appreciate it. That's our show for today. Men, remember that the story of your life is not yet all told. I'm Tony Rezac, and thank you for listening to Basecamp for Men.